I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and be turning once again to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. And we want to continue our study there in Ephesians chapter 5. And we have come to, to verses 25 through 27. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. The title of the message is The Believing Husband, Part 2. So uh, we've got another one for us husbands to, uh, to give ear to today. Ephesians chapter 5, and look beginning in verse 25. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We need to know and understand that when a, when a Christian loves, it, it is a response. Love on the part of a Christian is a response. First John chapter 4 verse 19 says this, we love because what? He first loved us, right? It is a response. It is true that, that God is the, the source of our love. His love has been shed abroad in our hearts. Romans says his love has been poured into us. And so because of that, because he has poured his love into our hearts, well then, now we have the capacity to be able to love others. And that is true. But it's also true to say not only is God's love the source of our love, but God's love is also, we could say this, it is the force of our love. It is the force of our love so that not only are we able to love, but as we understand his love for us, as we try to understand what the love of God is for us in Christ, that understanding fuels our love for others. So it's not only the source of our love, it's not only the force of our love, meaning it fuels our love for others, but it's also the course for our love. We know how to practically love others as we understand the love of God. We know how to practically bring that love down into the lives of other people. And so that love, it is the force that stands behind our love for others. It is the source and it is the course. It is the direction. It is how we bring that love to others. We see this as Paul is writing in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 for instance, and once again, I want, I want to remind us that as we look at this, we, what we see that we see this in a very practical way as we're talking about love of husbands and love of wives. Uh, it, it is very simply the application of broader doctrine. And if you want to know how to apply these things in your life, you have to know doctrine. We have to know the theology that is behind it. And so this brings us once again to the doctrine of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14, look with me there. It says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, here it is, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Why? Here it is. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. How does God fill our lives with his fullness? How does he work out his life in us and, and through us. It is as we grow in the knowledge of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says this, listen to this, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves 
but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And that word translated control there, the love of Christ controls us. That word means to be pressed in. It means to be gripped. It means to be hemmed in. That's the idea here. Paul is saying here that the knowledge of Christ's love for me, when I understand it rightly in my daily life, when I'm walking in that knowledge and having it at the forefront of my mind, it, it makes it impossible for me to live a self-indulgent life. And to the degree that we do live a self-indulgent life, we are not having this knowledge of Christ right before us. Because if we do, I'm left with no other option than to live for the one who died for me. To put it all on the line for the one who died for me. And he makes plain that that was not just true in his case. It was not just true in the Apostle Paul's case. It is true for all of us because he says, for the love of Christ controls us. It controls believers. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live. Who is the they? That, that's every one of us who were alive in Christ. That they who live, all of us, should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So then, now, when the Apostle Paul brings all of that down into talking about this instruction that he gives for husbands and wives, and now he gives the example of Christ and his church here, he is telling the Christian husband, number one, Christian husband, you have the capacity to love your wife like this. He's telling the Christian husband, number two, as you grow in your knowledge of Christ's love towards you, as, as that ever expands, as you just put your arms around that, then you will have the proper motivation to love your wife like this. And then number three, he's telling Christian husbands this, as you understand this knowledge, if you gain this knowledge of Christ's love towards you, you are, you are then going to have the boundaries. You are then going to have uh, the, the guidelines, uh, the way for practically knowing how to love your wife in this sort of way. So understanding Christ and understanding the church and understanding Christ's love for the church, it is going to give us the source. It is going to give us the force and it is going to give us the course that we need for this love. It is the origination of our love. How can husbands love their wives? Because of Christ. It's the source. It's going to give us the force. It's going to give us the fuel. Why should we love our wives like this? Because of Christ. And it is going to give us the course. How do we really do it? Look to Christ. Look to how he loved the church. And as we, so as we grow as understanding in, uh, as we grow in an understanding of that love, we are going to know better how to be able to apply this and love our wives the way we are commanded to. And so today I want us just to, to return to these verses, and I don't want us to focus on Christian husbands so much today as I want us to focus on Christ. I want us to look at Christ today, and as we understand his love for his church, we will better understand how we are to love our wives as Christian husbands. It's very simple, very straightforward, but it is very, very, very profound. So I want you to see, first of all, with me, Jesus loves his church. And these main headings are listed in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. But the first major heading, the first major thing we see here is that Jesus loves his church. This is in verse 25, that the Lord Jesus Christ has loved his church. Look at it. Verse 25. Just as Christ also loved the church. Again, very simple truth, yet very profound. Christ has loved his church church and to really get a hold of what he has in mind here we, we have to see that there's a definite progression to these verses I want you to notice these verses look down at these verses don't look up here look down at your Bibles because I want you to see this notice the verse says Christ also loved the church and then verse 25 says he gave himself up for her and then in verse 27 he says so that he might sanctify her. 
And then verse 27 says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. So there you have the love of Christ. It all starts with the love of Christ. And then you have redemption. And then you have sanctification. And then you have glorification. Which means that, that when he writes about Christ loving his church here, he's talking about the love that Jesus Christ had before he died for his church. When he starts off, and he starts at the very beginning saying Christ loved his church, it, it, yes, he did many loving acts for his church, but what he's talking about here is the love Christ had before he did anything for his church. It is the love that moved him to redeem his church. So we need to ask the question, well, what kind of love is that? What kind of love would move Christ to do all the things that he did for his church? How has Christ loved the church? And there's several things we can say about that love that he's talking here in verse 25. First of all, we need to recognize this. We need to recognize where it all starts. Because the first thing we can say about it is that it is a love of choice. It is a love of choice. How did Christ love his church before he gave himself up for her? He loved her by choosing her. A Christian is someone who was chosen by God. Listen, before they were ever born, before they were ever made, they were chosen by God for salvation. So when God loved you, Christian, he loved you before there was anything about you that was made. He loved you before he made anything. When, when, when there was nothing, when there was nothing but God, God chose you. God loved you. Malachi, I love him. Some call him the Italian prophet, Malachi, right? <laughs> but I love him because he's such a, he's such a question and answer prophet. And, uh, and so he, he would give voice to questions that people would ask. And then he would give the answer. And so in, in Malachi chapter 1 verse 1, the book begins this way. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mounds a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. So the question, how have I loved you? And the Lord says, how have I loved you? Don't you realize you are a chosen people? You are a chosen people. Don't, don't you realize that Esau is your older brother? And by birthright, everything goes to the older brother. Everything should be coming down to Esau. But I did not choose Esau. No, I chose you. And so even today, if you were to ask, how do I know? How do I know that the Lord Jesus Christ loves me? Sometimes we get in those situations and we ask that, Lord, how do I know that you love me? You want to know how that you can know, believer, that the Lord loves you? I just want you to look around the sea of people all around you, the sea of lost humanity, the sea of lost men and women who do not know the living God. The sea of lost men and women who do not know Christ as their Savior. They neither do not know, nor know Christ, nor do they care. Uh, they are like the psalm Marvin read this morning. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And they just don't care. And they have no understanding of the Word of God. They have no, no desire whatsoever to be anywhere in anything close to a, an assembled worship service like we are this morning. 
and to lift up their hearts and to lift up their voices in song to give praise to the Lord. And so you've got to ask yourself a question. How is it that you're here today? They're not here today. You're here today. And so why is that? How is it that you know the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ? How is it that you love Christ and other people do not? Even though you've never seen him, they've never seen him, you've never seen him. They don't love him, but yet you do. Why is that the case? How is it that is in, it is in your heart this morning to be here on the Lord's Day, to lift up your heart to him and to worship him when everybody else is out running errands and getting their groceries and they're at Walmart and out on the boat and on the water and, and all this other stuff? But yet you're here because there's a holy desire in your heart. Why is that? Why is that? It is because of God. God has chosen you for salvation. And that's why you're saved. He chose you. How have you loved me, Lord? The answer is, I loved you because I have chosen you. I want to tell you, election and predestination, they are so debated. They're such hot topics. But I want to tell you, when you go to the Word of God, you know what you're going to find? You're going to, I, I don't know if I can say every time, but I can definitely say this. You're going to find consistently that they are presented in Scripture in the context of love. Love. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, right in the very book we're in. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. And what does the very next statement say? In love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now, here's the explanation of it. According to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. He chose you before there was time. And, and his choice of you is explained only by what it says here. It says, by the kind intention of his will. Listen. That is the only way he could have ever chosen you. He had to choose you based upon the kind intention of his will. He had to choose you freely according to his will. You know why? Because there was not anything in you that deserved it. There was nothing whatsoever in you that, that, that merited it. Nothing, nothing that God could see or nothing that God could ever foresee in you that would ever move him to love you. That would ever move him to cause him to place his love upon you. Listen, God's love toward you is not explained by you. God's love toward you is explained by God. How has God loved you? He has chosen you for salvation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13, it says this. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because... God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. He says we give thanks to, to God for you, brethren. And you know what? He says you are loved by God. You are loved by God. You are beloved of the Lord. You are loved by God, he says, because God has chosen you from the very beginning for salvation. And he carried that out in your life by the Holy Spirit setting you apart, the Holy Spirit regenerating you, the Holy Spirit bringing you to faith in the truth. That's how he saved you. This is how he did it. So what kind of love is it that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his church? It's a love that chooses. It's a love of choice. But then second, a second thing we can say about this love is this. It is also a love of grace. It is the love of grace. Now listen carefully. When you say that God chose you for salvation, you have to be saying that this is a gracious love. That this is a gracious love, right? Because it's not explained by you, is it? You're not the reason for this love, right? 
And so that being the case, it has to be explained by God in his grace. And make no mistake about it, when you're talking about salvation, when you're talking about saving grace, I want to tell you, that kind of love, saving love, is only set on one person, one group of people. Who is that? That is the church. That is the church. Now, does God love the world? Absolutely he loves the world. He's sending sunlight upon the just and the unjust, rain upon the just and the unjust. Does God have a real, true love for sinners? Yes, he does. He doesn't bring them down into the pits of judgment right this very second. His love endures with them. But yet, on the other hand, does God have a special saving love for his people, for his elect? And the answer is yes, he does. Even our text says Christ loved his church and gave himself for her. Listen to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. The church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Who did he purchase with his own blood? The church of God. The church of God. It is a unique, exclusive love that God has for his church. Christ chose you out of a world of sinful humanity. And this choice can't be based on any goodness that you have, can't be based on any inherent righteousness that you have, because in this world of sinners, there is no one who has any good. There is no one who has any inherent righteousness. So what does God do? Well, now, not arbitrarily, but with good reasons. God has reasons for why he does what he does. And that reason is found in the secret counsels of the will of God. And I can guarantee you this, it does not have anything to do with your goodness or my goodness. Because apart from Christ, there is no goodness. And so this is the love of grace. It is a gracious love. But not only is it a love of choice, not only is it a love of grace, but a third thing we can say about this love is this is a love of specificity. This is a love of specificity. Notice in John chapter 17. Turn over to John chapter 17 if you would. This is the Lord's high priestly prayer here. John chapter 17. One of the premier, well I would say the premier prayer in all of scripture. We're seeing a few of those. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 on Wednesday nights. We just started the prayer of Daniel. Another premier prayer in scripture. But here in John chapter 17, we have the Lord himself praying. And if you look over there, you see the specific love. You, you can see this, we can say it this way, this, this discriminating kind of love. John 17, look beginning in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said... Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh. So there, you have the entirety of the human race before Christ. All flesh. Notice that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, to whom does the Son of God give eternal life to? This says, all those given to him by the Father. And when did the Father give to him this people? When did he love this people? He gave them to him before he would ever come to die for them. Before that would ever happen. You were given by the Father to the Son before time began. And he loved you. Christ loved you before he ever died for you. In fact, notice how he prays. Look at verse 6. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. 
I ask on their behalf. And then there's this absolutely startling statement here. Notice this. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Christ did not pray for the world. Christ prayed for those specifically given to him by the Father. This is a specific kind of love. This is a discriminating love here. But again, I want to stress the big picture here of of the graciousness of this love. It's not based on anything seen or foreseen in these people, in us. Nothing. Turn over to Romans chapter 9. The Bible makes that absolutely plain in Romans chapter 9. I want you to see this. Romans chapter 9, look beginning in verse 6. Paul writes... But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And what he's doing here, he's answering a a question. He's answering a concern here. So the the question is this, okay, Paul, you're you're telling us that that this gospel you preach that comes from God, uh, Paul, we're seeing just Jews in general all over the place. And they are rejecting this. They are rejecting Christ as their Messiah here. And what are we seeing? Instead, we're seeing Gentiles. Gentiles are believing the message. So, So Paul... Has God made these promises to Israel and it doesn't seem like he's fulfilling them? How do you explain this? What about all these promises? Have they, just, have they fallen through? Has the word of God failed? And now look at Paul's answer to this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born. Now notice what is stressed here. For though the twins were not yet born and had not, what does the Bible say? Done anything, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. How do you explain your salvation? Is it by your willing? This says no. Is it by your running? This says no. Is it by your choice? This says no. By your efforts? Absolutely not. None of that. So how is it explained? This says, notice, on God who has mercy. He had mercy on you. He loved you. This is a love of choice. This is a love of grace. This is a love of specificity. And then there's another thing we can say about this fourth. This is a love of covenant. This is a love of covenant. Uh, There was a covenant made within the Godhead. And as I said earlier, the Father gave a people to the Son. And the Son came into this earth to redeem that people. So then when Christ's blood was shed, it was blood shed to fulfill a covenant. A covenant that was made within the Trinity in eternity past. It is a covenantal love. So we are by God's grace included in Abraham's offspring by faith. By faith. Christ coming to carry out that act of love that was determined in the Godhead before time began. In eternity. 
So the first thing that we see in Ephesians 5, again, getting back to our text, taking all of this and coming back to Ephesians 5, and by the way, you can go ahead and turn back there, is that the Lord Jesus Christ has loved his church. He loved us by choosing us. He loved us by gracing us. He loved us by specifying us. And he loved us by fulfilling a covenant that was made with God. So, how does this instruct husbands? How does this inform husbands? Look, Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. How has Christ loved the church? We just talked about that. So husbands, how do you love your wives? Well, we realize that a husband has chosen a wife. A husband has chosen a wife. Husbands, you, you chose her out of all the others, right? And your playing field may not have been very wide, but, but nonetheless, you chose her from all the others. Now, understand that there's no way to perfectly live out here what Christ has done toward his church. But oh, what a model that we have here in Christ. Well, what an example that we have here. The wife to whom you are married to, husbands, listen, she is your wife. She's your wife. And now you are to go on. You chose her, and now you are to go on choosing her to the exclusion of others. Listen, no other woman on the face of this earth for you men, husbands, except her. Just simply her. I mean, would to God that we would realize that, even in the church, would to God that we would embrace that, how, how so many things that we see we have to deal with, even among those who name the name of Christ, how they would be done away with, how many things in our society that, that project upon the church, they would be done away with. People who profess to know Christ, who profess to be Christians, listen, husbands, you are to have covenantal eyes only toward one, the one in whom you were with in covenant. It is your wife, the woman of your covenant, your wife. You choose her. You chose her. You are to love her unconditionally. You love her as a gracious love. As we said last Lord's Day, as you continue to live with her as a wife, as you continue to grow together, it won't take very long before you start to see all those deficiencies that she has. And she's got them, okay? Some of you can say amen. Some of you can say, well, not mine. Well, just wait. You'll see. She's got them. She's got those deficiencies. She has those shortcomings. She, she has those failings. She has so many areas that she needs to change, and so do we, of course. So what do you do? You love her. Why do you love her? Because she's doing so much better in those areas? No. You simply love her because you love her. Jesus Christ demonstrated his love toward you and I while we were yet sinners. Scripture says Christ demonstrated his love to us and that he died for us while we were yet sinners. So you love her graciously. And you keep your covenant. She is your wife. You may have, a, you may have had a ton of people at your wedding. Or you may have had a, a small wedding and not many people there who witnessed your wedding. But I want to tell you, you had one who was there who witnessed it. And he makes all the difference in the world. And that was God. And God witnessed that covenant. God witnessed that marriage you entered into. And so you love her by keeping the covenant you made as God was witness to that covenant. And you do not break that covenant. So that's the first thing we see here, that Christ has loved his church. Second major thing I want you to notice with me is this, that Jesus gave himself for his church. Not only has he loved his church, but Jesus Christ gave himself up for her. Now I'm going to tell you right now, at the front end of this second heading, this is going to get us to something that is very controversial in in theological circles. But I think this is very important. I think this is important for us to understand. This is an important question for us to ask here. And the question is this. Simple question, but very controversial. Here's the question. For whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? For whom did he give himself up for? He died 
for his church. He died for his bride. He died for his people. I think we need to understand our Lord's death, it was not an indiscriminate uh, death. Christ died for all the sins of all the people who would ever believe in him. I believe that is what he did on a cross. And I believe, listen, that is why we can go and preach a universal gospel. I believe that is why we can go out and just preach the gospel all over the place and say, whoever will come to Christ, they can come to Christ. The, the way is open. The way is free. Romans 10 verse 9, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And know this, that if in hearing the gospel and your eyes have been open to your sinfulness, if there is this, this broken hearted repentance that you have in your life so that you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ, you can know that Christ saves you. And if you do that, He will save you. And if you did that, He saved you. And if He saved you, you can then turn back and look back and say, you know what? I know that Christ died for me. How do you know Christ died for you? Because He saved you. He saved you. That's the message that I believe that the Bible teaches, that Christ died for His church. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ died to satisfy the justice of God for someone's sins. That's why He died. And when He died, justice was done. It was done. He didn't pay for some of the sins for all people, he paid for all the sins of those for whom he died. The great Puritan John Owen, many years ago, he, he asked a, a great question, and I want, I want you to carefully hear this question, and I want you to hear his answer. He asked this question, did Christ die for all sins, or didn't he? Did Christ die for all sins, or, or didn't he? And and, and you really only have a few options here. Number one, option number one is this. Either Christ, now think with me through these, okay? Option number one, either Christ died for some of the sins of all people. Or number two, he died for all of the sins of all people. Or number three, he died for all of the sins of some people. Because you see, we have to admit something, right? When we talk about unbelief, when we talk about people not believing in Christ, is that a sin? That's a sin, right? Unbelief is a sin. And is it a sin to not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Well, the question is this, did Christ die for the sin of unbelief? Or did he not die for that sin? And if he died for the sin of unbelief, then the sin of unbelief has been atoned for. So, getting back to our three, our three possibilities, our, our three options. So, if he died for all of the sins of all people, including the sin of unbelief, well then guess what? Where is everybody going to be one day? They're all going to be in heaven, right? Absolutely. And that's a heresy that we call universalism, right? Because if he died for all the sins of every person, even the sin of unbelief, then no one has any sins that they would be answerable for. Christ paid them all. But second option, if he died for only some of the sins of all people, in other words, he, he died for all the sins of everyone out there except for the sin of unbelief, Except for that sin, I've heard that said before, Christ died for all sins except the sin of unbelief. He died for all of your sins, but if you don't trust in Christ as Savior, you won't be saved. The sin of unbelief, that he, he didn't die for that. Well, then I have to tell you this. I think we're in trouble. I think we're in trouble because if Christ does not, if Christ dies for every sin there ever is except for one, the sin of unbelief, 
Well, then I want to tell you, we're all in trouble. You know why? Because before we ever believed, guess what we did? Probably some of us over and over and over again, right? We didn't believe. And so if you're going to say he doesn't die for the sin of unbelief, well, then we're all condemned. Because before I ever believed, I didn't believe. And I committed this sin over and over and over again. So if he does not die for that sin also, well, then I'm lost. I mean, I'm lost. So if he died for all the sins but unbelief for all the people, well, guess what? No one is going to be in heaven. But, third option, if he died for all the sins of some, including the sin of unbelief, and not only died for their sins, but made sure that he would bring them to faith in himself, well, I would submit to you, now you're explaining true salvation. Now you're really showing what scripture shows. Now you are truly explaining grace. Because if the Lord did everything to save me, if Christ did everything to save me, and he just left it to me, Van, I've done everything to save you, and now all you have to do is just simply believe. I want to tell you this. I would be just as helpless as if he did nothing for me. You know why? Because in my wicked, unchanged heart, there would be no way in my natural heart that I would ever believe in him. I would never believe in Christ if he doesn't first take the initiative and change my heart. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Let me show you this. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 because really one of the passages that in my mind teaches this so clearly is Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And I want you to begin looking at verse 18. Romans chapter 5 verse 18. I think Paul just lays this out just so crystal clear. He keeps us in line, keeps us following the argument here. Romans chapter 5, look beginning at verse 18. So then as through one transgression, now who committed the one transgression? We know this, right? It's Adam, right? So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So who is affected by Adam's one act of disobedience? It's everyone who is in Adam, right? Everyone who is descended from Adam, right? All right, now notice the next statement. Even so... Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life. What does it say? To all men. Now, if that means all men without distinction, then what do you have right there? You have universalism, right? You have universalism. Everyone will be justified due to the death of Jesus Christ. But if you understand what... Romans is teaching here that is everyone who is in Adam has been a, affected by Adam's one act and then get this everyone in Christ has been affected by his one act then what do you have you have Christ dying for all the sins of all those who were counted to be in him before time began in terms of redemption that is what you have here so that when Christ came to this earth, he came to die for his church. He came to give himself up, scripture says, for her. He dies for his church. So look at verse 19. For it's through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. Even so through the obedience of the, of the one, Christ, the many, the many who are in Christ, the many will be made sinners righteous. He said, okay, Van, well, what, Van, what about all the verses that seem to just teach this, this sort of unlimited atonement, an atonement uh, for, for all sins? And so you have like the book of 1 John, what it says, not just for our sins, but also the, the sins of the whole world. Well, what do you do about those verses? Well, we don't have time to go through those individually this morning, but, but just suffice to say, I think if you could just put it into a couple of categories, I think some of those verses can be explained in terms of 
the, the Jew and Gentile distinctives and references, and some of those can be explained in terms of just the offer of the gospel. There's no doubt that when you talk about Christ as Savior, Christ is the Savior of the world, meaning not that he's saving every single person in the world, but he's the Savior of the world in the sense that he is lifted up to the world. He's the only Savior of the world. That if anyone is going to be saved in the world, they're going to have to look to Christ. So in that sense, Christ is the only Savior of the world that is given. And so there's that aspect of it. And so in that sense, his, his death speaks of the offer of salvation to, to the whole world. And no one, I don't think, would ever dispute. I certainly wouldn't dispute that, that the death of Christ... We talk about the value of the death of Christ. The value of the death of Christ is enough to not only redeem the whole world, it is enough to redeem a billion worlds if God so chose to do so. But again, getting back to where we started, if you ask this question again, the very simple question we're asking, for whom did Christ die? If you ask, what, what did his atonement, what did it accomplish? What, what did it do? My answer to that, and I believe what Scripture says, is this. It accomplished salvation for those who will believe. And those people who will believe, who are they? They are the elect of God. They are those chosen by God. In other words, short answer is this. Christ came to die for his church. Now, I don't want to camp on this much longer, but I do want to just say one other thing, one other thought here. If you want to make it very simple, I think, you know, when we talk about believers, I think every Christian will admit that Jesus Christ, uh, the God is, is omniscient, that God knows all things. And so if you have to bring it just down to a bare minimum, being God, being God who knows all things, he had to know before he ever came. He had to know how many and who would one day be in heaven worshiping him, right? Wouldn't we all agree with that? Him being omniscient, he knows that. He knows who will be in heaven worshiping him one day. So that knowing that, he would come to this earth already knowing who would be the ones who would be saved and dying for those people. So he gave himself up for the church. So now look back in Ephesians 5. I hope you're still with me. <laughs> so Ephesians 5. So Jesus loves his church. Jesus gave himself for his church. And now I want you to notice the third thing here, that Jesus sanctifies his church. He loved us. He gave himself up for us. And now notice this. This is so important. I think probably, probably more than you and I realize in the day and time we're living in, that Jesus Christ sanctifies his church. Look at verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So he loved us. He gave himself up for us. And then it says here, so that he might sanctify her. In other words, set us apart to himself, having cleansed her. In other words, forgiven us, cleansed us by the washing of water with his word. So he died that we might be forgiven, right? And the way that he brought that forgiveness to us is by faith. We're saved as we look to Christ. But that required something. That required regeneration. We had, to be, we had to be made new creatures in order to believe. The way we'd gone so far before, we had never believed. In it. And if we aren't changed, we're not ever going to believe. So there has to be this change first, this, this, this regeneration. And we talk about regeneration. Theologians call that a monergistic work, monergistic. Now, I know y'all just used that word over and over last week, right? Yeah, that was just monergistic. Mike Quintus used that word, so that tells you something about him, right? All right, Moner, what is that? That just means God did it all by himself. He did it all by himself. And you don't cooperate with regeneration so God does that in your soul but in, in a in a way that's indiscernible to us scripture says he also does it by his word he does it by his word and listen it is impossible to just sort of break these things down into like time and space and and all that I don't think God even means for us to do that when he's working in our lives in this way in a way of salvation but the Bible is clear that we should know that he regenerated us in some part 
by his word. Listen to this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. And so God brought life to you through the scriptures. That's why, that's why biblical preaching is just so refreshing, so freeing. You can just come into the pulpit and you just preach the word of God. And knowing that when it comes to regeneration, when it comes to giving a new heart, that's not my job to do. I can't do that. That is God. And so what do I do? I just simply, as faithful as I can, just open up the word of God, preach the word. That's my job. And then God's work is to save. God's work is to draw people to himself. Listen, you and I, we can't do that. We, we, we can't save anyone, right? But you know what else I know? And th this is such a joy that, that he does this. He uses his word to do it. He uses his word to do it. And so today we pray that even as we have looked at his word, the seed has been planted. That God will be drawing people to himself today through the preaching of his word. And that he might grant salvation to souls. But listen, he doesn't stop right there. From the moment you're made alive in Christ until the day that you're presented before the Son of God, do you know what Christ continues to do in your life? He continues to do this ongoing work of cleansing in your life with His Word. He is sanctifying you. Christ is forming you. Christ is growing you in the truth of His Word, into His very image. And so he is at work. Think about that. How often do you think about that? That here you are, believer, and Christ, Christ is at work in you each and every day. And he is doing a life-changing work in us. And notice, he's the one who has taken up this work. He not only loved his church, he not only died for his church, but verse 26, look at it, so that he might sanctify her. He himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at work forming you into his own image. What an amazing thought that is, right? We should be thinking about that every single day, right? As we grow in this knowledge, as we grow in righteousness, as we grow in, in learning how to live, do you see that Christ is doing a personal work in your heart through his Holy Spirit? He is at work in you. Listen, it's not... It's not just opening your Bible in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening whenever you read it. It's not, just, it's not just words on a page. It's not just something mechanical. Christ is doing something with that. He is growing you. And that's why the Bible says that there is no justification that does not result in sanctification. If you have really been saved, listen, you will grow in the Lord. He will ensure that you will do that. And you know what? I love what John MacArthur says. He says he loves you so much that he will make you holy. And if he has to, if you rebel against his word, if you choose to go against his word, if you fight against his word, he will discipline you. That's how much he loves you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is what the Word of God says. Why does He discipline His children? He does it because He loves you. And it really gets to the ultimate purpose of why He did all of this. Do you realize that from the very beginning, He had all of this in mind? He had your name in mind. Scripture says your name was engraven upon his hands. It was not just your name, not just a bare name, not just a bare per. Well, we got this, we have this person, but what is the end of it all? What is the per, what is the, uh, we'll say what the theologians say, what is the telos of all of this? He had that in mind as well. I mean, when he loved you, he had the end in mind for you. When he died for you, he had the end in mind. And it involves this thing that is called sanctification. Sanctification. Look back at Ephesians chapter 1. Look at that fourth verse. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now why? What, what was the purpose at work in the heart of God in all of this. Why would he do this? Notice that we would be, what does it say here? 
holy and blameless before him. This is what was at work in his mind when he loved you. This is what was at work in his mind when he chose you. That you would be holy and blameless. What about when he was dying for you? What was in his heart and mind as he died for you? Let me show you this real quick. Turn over to Titus chapter 2. I really want you to see this. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. This is an amazing passage of scripture here. Titus 2 beginning in verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly when, notice, in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. When you think about why Christ died, look at that passage. That is why he died there. So the Son of God says, I love my church. I'm going to die for my church. I'm going to take hold of her. I'm going to set her apart for myself. And I am going to be at work in her, cleansing her, washing her bringing about the holiness and blamelessness that I had in mind for her before I ever came into the world. That is what he's doing. This is how he has loved his church. So he loves his church. He gave himself for his church. He sanctifies his church. And go back to Ephesians 5. There's a fourth and the last point I want us to pick up here. Jesus guarantees final glory for his church. He guarantees final glory for his church. Notice verse 27. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So it starts off that, that he might present to himself. You know, in our weddings, what do we usually have? We have... Uh, the, the pastor who's officiating and here she is that bride in all of her radiance and, 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 and who is that not nearly as good looking one that is on her side that's escorting her down it's usually dad right so you have dad coming down and so dad is going to give the bride away but as we look here there's no one worthy to give this bride away no one worthy for this there's no one qualified for this no the one qualified is the one who loved her. The one qualified is the one who gave himself for her, the one who, who has been at work in her since, since she was saved to sanctify her. And one day he will present himself, uh, present her to himself, I should say, having done all this work, he will, he will be the one to present her to him, spotless and glorified. His church, his bride, in all her glory. And I want to tell you, if we understood this, if we embrace this, if we embrace this, um, this picture as we should, I mean, it would really change the way we looked at a wedding. It really would change it. And no loving husband, no, no, no man who says he loves uh, a woman, who loves a bride, would ever, into, ever enter into a marriage that would ever be defiling to her. And so this is the picture that we have here. So how will we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ when he presents us to himself one day? How will we stand? How will we look? It's almost funny, but you know, the Apostle Paul, he's going to give us the internal reality, right? But guess what? He's going he's to talk about the outside too. He's going to talk about the external and he's going to talk about the internal here. The external appearance, the internal reality. So externally, what does he say here? He says there will be no spot. Literally, that word means stain. Uh, there, there's not going to be any stain on us. The fact of the matter is sin leaves a stain. And so he says right here, this is going to be washed away by the blood of the Lamb. No stain, no stain at all. And then he, he doesn't just stop there. He keeps going with the picture. Some of us may appreciate this, right? Look at what he says next. No wrinkle, no wrinkle. That external picture no stain, no a picture of, of youthfulness. Youthfulness that is there, perfect youth. 
Some people ask, you know, what, what age are we going to be in heaven? And the age that we're going to be in heaven, by the way, just so you know, you, all of us in heaven, we are going to be age, I don't know. So, uh, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't really think we need to know. But what we do know here is that when it comes to, to us, the picture is here. No spot, no stain, no wrinkle. And then what does he write next? What is the next thing that he says here? He says, or any such thing. In other words, what is the point he's making here? What is the point he's making? He's saying, listen, externally spotless, externally beautiful, externally perfect. But we all know there's so much more to beauty, right, than just merely the external. What about the internal? And not only will there be the removal of these negative things, these negative things, he's mentioned spots, wrinkles, things like that. Well, there's also going to be the presence of something positive that is here. And one day we're going to stand before the Lord and do to his work, his work from beginning to end, as we see in these verses, all the way from eternity past, loving us way back then, all the way to the future, presenting us before him. All of this will stand before him holy. We will stand before him with the very character of Christ, with the very nature of Christ reflected in us. Listen, and just look around at all the other people who will be doing this too, not just you, but look at the others. That person you're sitting next to, that person whose head right in front of you, who knows the Lord, we will be there blameless blameless to stand before him and I want to tell you this was his purpose all along this was his design first Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ Colossians chapter 1 verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. One day when Christ presents his bride to all the universe, all the created universe, the recreated universe, the perfected universe that is no longer groaning in judgment to all the angels, to all of heaven, even to all of hell, that they will see the work of God and even though their hearts are far from Him, they will even glorify Him in that because they have to, not because they want to. When He does all of this, when Christ's bride is presented in all her glory, there won't be one single accusation because of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ answers it all. It answers it all. And the work of Jesus Christ will now be presented. There we are, us presented. And what do we look like? We look like the very image of Christ. Can you even imagine that? So now let's get back to what we're talking about. And we're done. Just give me two minutes. Husbands, you need to meditate on that, right? I need to meditate upon this. Think about how Jesus Christ has loved the church But don't just think about how he has loved the church as a whole. Husbands, you need to think about this. This is how he has loved you. You belong to that church. You are an individual part, husbands, of this whole group, this church. So think about how he has loved you. He has loved you this way. Husbands, you know the experiential love of God. And what he's saying here is, listen, this is not something foreign to you. This is not something distant from you. You know this, husbands. You have experienced this. And now having known it and now having experienced, now you channel it and you pour out that same love upon your wife. You deal with your wife the same way Christ has dealt with his church. You are a part of his church. You are an individual part. This is how he's dealt with you. You know this. You've experienced it. Now you deal with her the way he's dealt with you. And you will be loving your bride as Christ loved the church. Let's pray.
Well, Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you. Well, Father, we thank you that we do because it's because of what you have done that we can respond in love. So we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love that we've known in Christ. And Father, we do give you praise for that. It is your love that we have known in Christ. Father, I pray for the men here in this place who are married, all of us who have wives. Father, we fall so desperately short of this picture that the Apostle Paul gives us of Christ in the church. Father, may we repent and may you by your spirit empower us to be able to love our wives in this way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's by grace through faith that ye are saved. A faith that's not your own. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God, the gift of God to you.